What is up, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. As always, I am your host, Taylor Lote. Today, we're joined by Ben Frazier from Aspen Funds. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Aspen Funds and specializes in alternative asset investing. Ben, how are you doing today? Doing well, Taylor. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you with us. For our listeners out there, could you tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, and what you guys invest in? Then we'll dive into topic of discussion today. Sure. Yeah. As you mentioned, I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Aspen Funds. Aspen Funds, we are um, in multi-asset classes, so in all private alternative investments, predominantly real estate, but also oil and gas holdings. And so our approach is a little bit different where we kind of look at the macroeconomic trends where we see those opportunities and then build strategies and teams and those verticals. And so we have about five different verticals that we're focused on and have been around for about uh, almost 11 years now. Um, so yeah, my job is kind of finding the deals, vetting the deals, forming the capital for them and uh, you know, making sure they perform well. Great. Okay. So today, so we've never spoken about oil and gas investing on the show before. And and in part, that's because I'm I'm honestly a bit wary of the space generally because I've seen a lot of my friends make the wrong investment decision in the oil and gas space because they didn't understand what they were getting into. So today, if we could dig a bit into your specific strategy in that area and your thoughts about the space, I think that's really where I'd like to go uh, with this conversation. So can you tell us about how you guys do oil and gas investment deals? Then we'll dig a bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I said before, our approach is a little bit different to where we're not a hammer and everything's a nail, right? Where there's a lot of people that are in one vertical, say multifamily syndicator, and they just only ever do multifamily. And while there's some advantages to doing that, where you can maybe vertically integrate and you get some efficiencies by doing that, inevitably, as you know, you've been in the space for a while, all asset classes go through different cycles, right? And there's better times than others to invest in certain asset classes. And so our approach is to be agile, to find where we think the best risk-adjusted risk opportunities are, and then be able to invest in those um, uh, when we think it's the right time. And so through that approach, it's led us into oil and gas investing. And I am not an oil and gas expert for of, you know decades. I've only been investing for several years here. Um, and we've learned a lot along the way, which I'll share. But part of the reason we're excited about it is we think there is a, um, a high probability you know, to the upside in oil prices for a lot of reasons. And there's a really unique dynamics going on in the oil and gas space and fossil fuels in general uh, related to you know the electric vehicle uh, kind of standards that are being set, a lot of the green energy or renewable standards that are being kind of pushed on to a lot of capital allocators. So the real simple story is about seven or eight years ago, uh, we started seeing a huge push of capital allocators to be investing less into fossil fuel production, more into green energy. Hey. That's good. We should be doing that. But it's um, kind of caused a massive drop off of investment into new production. So we've seen a, a, a drop of over 50% of uh, investment into new exploration and development of, of wells. And if you think about oil and gas, it's different than real estate, where generally real estate appreciates over time, right? Oil and gas is the opposite. It, it depletes over time. So it has a, a downward trend because as you pull out all the resource from uh, the, the reservoirs, of the wells, you have less than you had before. On average, every year, about five to 10% of global production is depleted away. So if we're not continually reinvesting back into new production and development, 
we have a major decline curve on supply. And so we're, it's, but it's a long tail. So it takes a little while for that to, you know, hit into the actual supply numbers, but it goes both ways, right? So we're starting to see this uh, reduction of supply kind of hit from lack of reinvestment uh, almost a decade ago. And there's not new investment coming into the market and you can't just flip a switch and turn it on. So the real question then is demand. What does demand do? And there's a lot of, you know, opinions on that, but our opinion based on, you know, a lot of the research we've done is most, um, you know, agencies, even the ones that are kind of biased toward, you know, very, very green and liberal, uh, expect demand to at least stay the same, if not increase over the next uh, decade and and mul multiple decades. And so you have kind of at a minimum consistent demand, possibly increasing demand um, while you have decreasing supply. And, you know, if you understand economics 101, you know, that's usually, um, you know, puts pressure on the upside uh, for for prices. So we want to be a seller into the market for pr predominantly oil. Um, oil is, uh, we think, a better commodity to have exposure to than natural gas for a variety of reasons. Most notably, it's the most energy dense, easily transportable fuel source that we've ever found. Um, natural gas is a little more localized because uh, you can't transport gas as easily unless there's infrastructure. So um, that's kind of the thesis. That wasn't really your question, but I wanted to explain, you know, why we're interested in it because I think that that matters. Um, and now you kind of get into you know the meat of it. Where where do you invest in oil and gas? Because you're right. As we started investing in this space, and started doing um, just basic due diligence, evaluating different strategies, types, and ways to invest in oil and gas, we just saw a lot of different things. And for some reason, I don't I don't know why it is, um, but it feels like there's a lot more. I don't want to say bad actors in the space than real estate, but it definitely attracts a lot of people that exaggerate a lot. And generally, um, because it kind of goes in these booms and bust cycles, it's just, you know, when it's good, everyone's just saying, oh, it's the best thing ever. But then you don't hear them talking about that when there's a bust cycle, right? So you, you have to understand there's a lot more volatility in this space. And what most people do, what most people invest in, I'd be curious what your friends invested in, but what, what, most, what attracts most people to the space are the tax incentives, right? And so basically, the, um, the incentive is if you go and invest in a pure drilling program, so you're investing in a single well being drilled or uh, several wells being drilled, a lot of these operators will front load a lot of these expenses um, into the calendar year. And then you can write off what's called intangible drilling costs against active income. That, that's a big deal, right? You can't do that in real estate. So if you're uh, earning high W-2 income and you invest in real estate, you can't take those losses from depreciation against your active income. But in oil and gas, there are ways to structure it where you can. That's attractive. That's really cool. And and I think you should consider that. The, the, the challenge with that is, these are people I think, they don't think beyond that, is if you're investing in that strategy, you have a massive degree of risk, right? And, you know, the the basic definition of risk is variance of return. So if you're investing in drilling programs, you might hit uh, oil on the well if it's a single well uh, drilling program, or you might not. So you either have a 100% success or 0% success, right? <laughs> so either, even though you get some of the, the, the tax write-offs, the tax write-offs are good, but you should never let the tax tail wag the dog, right? Because if you end up with a zero and you end up with a, a uh, capital loss, that's not good. And so the goal is to get tax incentives while also managing risk and generating strong returns. 
And so what we've seen in talking with people, and we haven't invested into pure drilling programs because of that, is some people say, oh, it's the best thing I ever did. And, you know, inevitably they're, you know, drilling probably went pretty well. And then some people say, I lost all my money and those drills probably did not go well. The other kind of piece of it too is a lot of the syndicators that are out there raising money are smaller mom and pop operators, right? And nothing against mom and pop operators, but in oil and gas, it is uh, structurally very capital intensive. It's very capital intensive business. And if you're not a sophisticated operator, knowing how to manage your cash flow, knowing how to manage cash reserves, you know, knowing how to build out a pro forma and capex plan, you can actually be making money in, in your, your wells, but you guys should go out of business because you're not managing your cash flow and the capital expenditures and the ongoing workovers and maintenance needed uh, to do it. So from my perspective, you need to have a sophisticated operator that understands sophisticated financial modeling, capital structures, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to operate this long-term. So what we've done and our strategy is um, what's called non-operated working interests. So there's kind of working interests, royalty interests. Royalty interests are where you uh, basically own the minerals, you buy the rights to the minerals, and you lease those to the operator. And you get a royalty for doing so. You don't get as much tax incentives. You're also, the, the royalties you get are contingent on the production that's being produced by the operator. So you don't have any uh, control in the deal. It's just whatever they're doing, you get the byproduct of whether it's good or bad. On the working interest side, you have a little more exposure if you're the operator because you have operational risks, but you get the upside of, you know, if you hit the hit oil and you're doing the drilling and you get the tax incentives. Ours is a subset of that where we're non-operated working interest. So we basically go and buy interests in uh, with large operators. And so we buy very small portions of generally middle market horizontal wells in proven basins with large operators. So we basically give the operational control of these large operators and for example, one of the assets we purchased a while back is uh, has 143 wells with eight different operators, most of which are publicly traded. And so we have we kind of reduced the risk uh, from doing that. And uh, then you get the upside of the oil and you still get the tax benefits as well. Wow. So there's so much there. And for the listeners, uh, you, you can't see how basically violently I was nodding my head when you were uh, mentioning things about the, the bad actors and folks letting the tax tail wag the dog, sometimes a bit too much, in my opinion, within this space. Uh, that is, those are probably my two biggest concerns about this area because folks hear about the, all these potential tax incentives and choose to dive in before doing their due diligence and understanding how the investment model works, the background of the folks doing deals and everything that's relevant, all that stuff that we need to do before we make an investment, no matter what it is. So on the bad actor side of things, how do you approach that to make sure that folks are legitimate? What are some steps that you take or that folks can take to at least you know reduce or severely mitigate the risk of doing a deal with a bad actor in the space? Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> if because here, here's my thought. There, there's bad actors and then there's um, exaggerating actors, right? And so a bad actor that, that's doing a pure Ponzi scheme. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of this. I might have gone through the book or the other channels as well. But there was a, um, a group selling a carbon credit uh, uh, trademark deal uh, technology. 
and they raised like $250 million. And it was a Ponzi scheme from day one. They had no, they had no patents. They had no technology. It was 100% fabricated. And they allegedly, it's still in court. Allegedly, okay. it's still Alleged. in court. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should say allegedly. I'm, yes. Um, not, not the attorney here. So, but it's likely to come out as, as it was a Ponzi scheme from day one. So, there's a lot of smart people invested in that that I know of. It's, it's difficult. Uh, so, I want to be clear because I don't think it's just here's the magic five things you do. But I do think there are things that if you educate yourself, you can understand. So for one example, we went to a conference. There were some sponsors that were promoting a drilling program they were doing. And they were doing a horizontal well. They basically were selling interest in a one well, vertical well program, right? And so we've, we've done vertical well drilling. We know it costs about you know half a million to three quarters of a million to drill a vertical well. They're selling interest in this one well drill for over $3 million. So the valuation for this is at $3 million. So they are grossing up what they're doing by a factor of four, maybe five times. You're not going to know that going in unless you have a basis for understanding what does it generally cost, right? And so maybe in the PPM, they would disclose what those are. But again, there's... There's just like some things that are pretty clearly you want to you want to watch out for. The way that I think you reduce a lot of risk, and I didn't mention this in our part of our strategy, which is kind of the core of it. We don't generally, we don't do, we definitely don't do pure drilling programs. We go and buy producing existing assets. So it's called PDP, proven developed producing wells. This is an SEC designation. You have proven reserves in the ground. These wells are uh, producing currently, and you can buy that that stream of cash flow. And the cool thing right now is because a lot of the capital allocators have left space the past few years um, because they have these ESG uh, uh, scores they have to hit, we're buying them at 15 to 20% present values, unlevered. So with all the decline curves built in, with all the engineering reports and you know at whatever price deck you're kind of pricing that on, we're buying it at a really good discount rate. And then you can leverage that cash flow into new drilling you know, if you if you choose to do so to kind of generate a little higher IRR, um, and then we employ hedging and other strategies to kind of mitigate some of that risk. But from a bad asker standpoint, I, I do think be really wary of the smaller mom and pops. Um, you know, the other kind of big piece of this is geology, which I'm not a geologist; I don't understand all that. But having making sure that people that are involved in it and they're getting the right assessments, or they're getting the right third party valuations, and there's no conflict of interest between those. And um, and then understand what your risks are, right? If, if it's a, you know, doesn't matter how good the investment summary looks. If you're, if you're investing in drilling, you're going to have more risk versus if you're investing in existing, existing producing wells. And then there's different types of drilling. There's exploratory wildcat drilling, which is kind of trying to find oil in new formations where infill is more, hey, there's, been a thousand wells drilled in this, you know, acreage, and we're going to drill the thousandth and first well, right? And, and generally now with a lot of the technology, you ha we have a pretty good idea of where the reservoirs are, and you know the success rate has gone up dramatically. You know, in our in our fields across not just our drills but across the whole basin, there's about a ninety percent success rate of hitting oil and infill drilling. All right, so you have a lower risk there. Um, 
So you have to understand what type of drilling is it? Is it in a proven basin? Is it in a newer part of another basin? Um, and then it ultimately, you know, where I come back to it is this, especially right now in this environment, well-capitalized sponsors with you know, big capital backing with long, long track records is very, very important right now because that's what's going to allow, um, you know, even if there are challenges, you know, and we're talking oil and gas, not just real estate and all these kind of things, but I think that that's a big factor too, is of, of who you're investing with um, really, really matters aside from just what's the actual um, oil and gas program or security that you're investing in. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the sensitivity to the actual commodity prices. You know, we live at a time of high commodity prices, but that's not set in stone. The price of oil could go down. That certainly happened before in the past. So how sensitive is this model to fluctuations in commodity prices? Great question. Yeah, I think it's something that everyone needs to be thinking about, right? Because in real estate, we're not used to, right? It's just kind of, you know, a little more steady eddy. We have a good sense of, yeah, it's, it's ebbs and flows, but it's not very much variance to the mean, right? Over time, generally speaking. But you're right, oil and gas, uh, if you're not hedging, you have 100% exposure to <laughs> the commodity prices. And that's the simple answer. Um, so we employ a, an element of hedging uh, to reduce that volatility. We, we try and keep it lower. Uh, we're usually trying to be under 50% hedge because we, we believe the probability is to the upside. But we can be wrong, right? And economists are wrong all the time in you know, timing Timing really matters on some of these things. And you know, we would think oil prices would be higher right now, given some of the things going on, but they're not. There's so many factors that impact uh, the oil, oil prices. And on the on the long-term trend, we have you know pretty firm belief that it is to the upside, but I don't know what it's going to do tomorrow or next month, even next year, especially going to recession potentially. So there's a lot of things where you have to understand that. I think having some level of hedging is important, but the real like kind of end all number you want to really understand is what's the break even oil price, right? To make this a profitable production. We want to make sure we're usually somewhere, you know, depending on the basin and the formation, the operational costs and the operators, it's usually somewhere around $40 a barrel. So right now, as we talk today, I don't know if this will be released in January. So we're kind of in the mid seventies, right? So that's a pretty good margin. Um, and if it goes higher than that, that's just all gravy, right? Because your fixed costs are an overhead are, are generally, um, you know, pretty pretty uh, pretty level there. So um, you want to understand what the break-even cost of oil is. There was a time, you know, a couple of years ago in 2020, where oil prices went negative for a day, right? That that was uh, blowing brain circuits left and right because you're basically producing oil and paying someone to take it for, from you. I mean that. That, that never really happened before, but it only happened for a day. It was a, it was a small, you know, fluke in the market, and you know, oil prices since then have have gone up. So you, you just have to be able to withstand the, the volatility, which again is why being a well capitalized um, operator really matters in especially volatile times. How levered do these t- business plans typically get, if at all? And we'll step back from the impact on the overall economy. Of interest rates, I mean specifically on this this investment model, how much does interest rates really play a factor? Yeah, uh, it's definitely something to look at. And I think if you rewind the clock about four or five years, leverage was really cheap, obviously. And in the oil and gas space, when there was more drilling, 
the capital markets were a lot more robust. And so a lot of these operators were using leverage to do drilling. But then when you're high, when you're higher leverage, not high leverage is real estate, but say 50%, 60% leveraged, and oil prices go negative and oil prices stay pretty low for a while, that's a really bad recipe. So inherently, when we have higher volatility, you should have structurally less debt because you're taking a lot more risk if you're if you're not, or you should be hedging a lot more of your production. Um, but yeah, in our case, we are employing a little bit of debt. We're usually staying under 25%, um, but we're that's part of the reason why we're doing the hedging, right? So we, we always have at least enough um, uh, pro, uh, hedging that we're selling of production to cover debt service costs. Um, and so that's, you know, if you're going to do hedging, I think you should have, uh, sorry, if you do use debt, you should have hedging for us. It's very valuable because we have a, a fund that we're you know, purchasing um, assets over time. And so it's, it's an effective way to manage our capital uh, by having a, a line of credit. And then our, our interest rates, even though they are higher than they were a couple of years ago, because the, you know, free cash flow on these properties is nearly 20%, even at current prices. Um, it's still very accretive to the overall, you know, fund returns because your, your debt costs are under 10%. So if someone wanted to get educated more on how this model worked without going and getting a degree in petroleum engineering or mining engineering or what have you, where would you point them? Are there any publications or uh, thought leadership platforms or what have you out there where they can go and learn more about the oil and gas investment model. There's a lot of great things out there. I mean, you know, our podcast, uh, we've talked a lot about it over the past six months because it's something we've uh, been very focused on. Um, we actually just did a, you know, not to be self-promoting here, we did a, a 90 minute oil and gas masterclass. We brought on a, a, a partner in that fund that's you know, been been in the space for over 40 years and just talk through basically just educating around the vernacular, you know, the risks and the things to think about and understand just the the terminology because it is a very different space, right? So if you're ever going to invest in something you don't understand, make sure you have a decent level of understanding before you before you do, because you really want to understand what you're doing. It's it's I think the the risk of capital loss is a lot higher in, in this space than it is in real estate. Um, although, you know, we're probably going to see a lot of equity wipeouts in real estate over the next couple of years, which is a whole other conversation. But um, regardless, oh, you know, you got to understand what you're what you're investing in because uh, you should you should uh, take take ownership of of uh, where you're investing your money and, and not just blindly trust somebody that you know has a good pitch deck or you know somebody that knows somebody. You know, those are the those are the ways that you can get into trouble. One hundred percent agreed. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Tracking your rental property business no longer needs to be a hassle. Stessa, a new financial technology company, helps real estate investors just like you take their real estate rental portfolio to the next level by automating the financials of their rental property portfolio. You can get started with just 20 bucks a month to take your rental business to the next level by tracking your properties automatically collecting rent, tracking your expenses, and so much more. Using technology can take so much of the hassle out of owning a rental property portfolio. So check out Stessa today by using our link in the description and you can get started for free or upgrade to their pro package for just $20 a month. This type of software can save you a ton of time 
Go check out Stessa today by using our link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. All right, Ben, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? That That's a hard one because I like reading a lot. Um, the one I'm reading right now that's been kind of shifting my uh, a long way I've been thinking recently is called 10X is Easier Than 2X by Dan Sullivan, um, who's you know well-known author, uh, founder, strategic coach. He wrote Who Not How. Really, really good book. It's uh, all about scaling, all about really thinking bigger and trying to set bigger goals to force yourself to do higher impact activities. Um, so it's been a great, great book. I love it. Nice. Question number two, who or what inspires you? Man, that's a, that's a really good, good question. Um, yeah, I'm a man of faith. So there's a lot of people kind of in a, from a faith standpoint that inspire me. Um, it's pretty cool. I, I get to, in what I do work with my dad and, uh, so he, I'm a partner with him and, um, it's been really cool to get to work with him. He's, he's always been a hero of mine and, um, I've learned a lot from him. And so, uh, it's been, been very cool to get to work with him and definitely inspires me. Nice. Question number three, think about Ben at 80 years old. What advice would he give to Ben of today? Another great question. What it makes me think of this quote. I'm probably going to botch it a little bit, but the concept I just absolutely love. I think it's Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's kind of um, partner. And he said, to be highly successful, all you have to do is be slightly above average over a long period of time, right? I love that concept because so many people don't think about the power of compounding, the power of time and what they're doing. And I think we overexpect what we can achieve in a short amount of time, but underexpect what we can achieve on a long time scale. And so you throw out the 80-year-old, the you know, to me, I think it's be patient, but continually just to make those consistent um you know, slide, just try to be slightly better than every everything else you're, you know, everyone else that's in the space and even slightly better than what you were doing yesterday. And those consistent kind of slide out performances over time are going to have a massive compounding impact um, in all areas of life, right? Finances, uh, family, marriage, health, um, all those things. I think it, it applies everywhere. Love it. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to reach out and get in touch, where can they track you down? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. really appreciate it. Um, we have our own podcast called Invest Like a Billionaire. You can check out some of our insights there. And then our private equity firm is aspenfunds.us. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.